You're listening to the ModernDogTrainer.net podcast, bringing you the best industry tips and topics for professional dog trainers worldwide. Hi there. Thanks for tuning in to listen to the Modern Dog Trainer podcast. My name is Ines McNeil, and I wanted to just take a minute to say thank you to all our listeners. It's been a pleasure sharing our knowledge with you over the last couple of years, and I hope you found our interviews really helpful. My goal for 2017 is to grow the blog and podcast so that we can help even more dog trainers succeed in their businesses. One way you can help is by leaving us a review in iTunes. Reviews help promote the podcast in iTunes so we can expand our audience. Another thing I wanted to mention is that late in 2016, I added a ton of new free downloads and a free mini course on market research on our website, www.themoderndogtrainer.net. In addition to those free resources, I've also created a new dog training business bundle of templates and a new 12-week online course, How to Start a Successful Dog Training Business, for new dog trainers that want to start their own businesses quickly and correctly. Definitely check the website to see the latest resources and follow us on Facebook to stay up to date on all of the latest improvements. Now, let's get to the show because this is one of our best ones yet. Hi there. Welcome to the Modern Dog Trainer podcast. I'm Ines McNeil, founder of the Modern Dog Trainer blog and podcast, and I'm here today with Kat Camplin, my co-host and blog contributor. Good morning. Show notes are found at themoderndogtrainer.net. Feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Modern Trainer and on Facebook. Awesome. So today we've invited Brian Burton, Um, on the show today to talk about how he started out as a dog trainer and how he's been able to grow his dog training business in New York City into such, you know, the successful facility that it is today. Um, Additionally, he's been completing some recent research on the limitations of using behaviorism learning theory quadrants for training decisions um, that I think we're going to enjoy hearing about today. So welcome, Brian. Hey, thank you. Really excited to be here. Awesome. Thank you. Welcome, Brian. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So um, as you guys mentioned, I'm the, uh, the owner of Instinct uh, Dog Behavior and Training in New York City uh, that I founded and run uh, with my wife, Sarah Frazier. Um, we have 15 employees there and we, and we have a facility in East Harlem. Um, so that's what keeps me busy uh, seven days a week. Um, I've been training now uh, a little over 10 years um, and, uh, you know, started back in the sort of the shelter and rescue world and then um, just sort of evolved over time uh, to the point where I'm at today. Um, And uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm currently working on my my master's degree in animal behavior um, with my thesis focused on some topics related to separation anxiety. Um, And then personally, I have uh, five dogs, so I have three bully mixes. Uh, Buster, Mo, and Will, uh, and I have two very bad little rat terriers named Jackie and Joe. <laughs> it's always a little. They might start barking at some point through this thing, so they're behind me right now. Um, no so problem. So we'll see. <laughs> awesome. So, um, so you said you started training ten years ago, or you started your business ten years ago? Started training ten years ago. So, uh, Instinct started, um, you know, in two thousand nine. Um, 
So we're into our seventh or eighth year uh, now. Um, so back in 2009, Sarah and I started Instinct, um, really just trying to offer people, um, you know, just help for for their dogs in the city. It's a, you know, it's a, New York City can be really challenging for dogs yeah. uh, and for people. Yeah. So that that was really our focus from, from the beginning. Um, I think I was a lot more confident back then <laughs> than I am now. Um, so, uh, but yeah, so that's what we started to do. And we, we offered uh, day training and lessons and uh, did that out of people's homes. Um, and then we also added like a free group class that took place in Central Park. And we still do those classes uh, for people who finish program. So, um, and that's how we were sort of able to build a following. And I uh, uh, did that for a number of, a couple of years. And then in 2011, we opened up our current facility that we're in right now where we can uh, do have 15 to 20 dogs um, and we added board and train and we added boarding for clients as well. Um, so we've been there since 2011 and uh, we are in the process of moving to our new facility now in uh, just around the block from us, uh, also in East Harlem, but going to uh, going from 1,500 square feet to 6,000 square feet. Wow. Um, 3,000 3, inside, 3,000 outside. We're going to have a, a nice little dog park out there. If uh, if the Department of Buildings uh, will ever give us our certificate of occupancy, which we hope to get next week, so hopefully we'll, we'll be in there soon. Oh, wow. Wow. Good luck with awesome. that. Yeah, I hope it goes through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. too. That's, that's just such an amazing story that you've had that much growth in um, a fairly, you know, short period of time. Um, that's That's awesome. What do you think kind of contributed to, you know, that kind of success? I, I think that it's um, a good question. I honestly think it really it, it's, it's a good environment to be a dog trainer because, um, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's a really challenging environment yeah. um, in terms of uh, dogs, you know, coping and, and thriving in that environment. Um, and I think some dogs would prefer to live there. Some dogs do excellent in the city, but then for dogs who struggle with that environment it's really challenging um, and it's really challenging for, for the owners and it's really challenging for the dogs um, so I do and, and there's also a huge market I think the last time I looked there was over a million dogs in New York City um, like a million pet dogs um, so it's also just you know the, the environment is sort of set up I think you know to kind of encourage training um, and New York City also tends to be more progressive uh, in terms of I think looking for rewards-based training as well. Um, so I think all those things, you know, certainly helped us um, sort of like move the business along. Interesting. So I'm in LA and, you know, dogs are not allowed anywhere, really. Um, so what is it like in New York? Are dogs allowed places? Are they allowed in cabs? I mean, it just boggles my mind how a dog must live in such a crazy uh, human-oriented city. Yeah, yeah. It's... Uh, you know, for dogs who are who are uh, socially motivated and, and socially friendly, it, it, it can be like a really, really great environment because, you know, you can get uh, a lot of cabs will pick you up. You know, I, I've taken, you know, even with my pit mixes, um, you know, cabs will pick me up. Uh, Uber, if you let them know you have a dog, like they'll pick you up with your dog. Um, you know, there's different car services that will do that. So getting around the city, you know, it's possible. Um you can also take dogs on the subway if they're in a bag. And if you Google that, there's some kind of ridiculous examples of like <laughs> yeah. people with their 50 pound dogs in like little, like big, big satchels. Um, I think I've seen you know, <laughs> so 
<laughs> yeah. And, um, and, and, you know, a lot of restaurants now allow uh, dogs to, you know, come sit out, sit outdoors at patios. So that's a goal for a lot of people. And, um, and uh, you know, so, so dogs are welcome in, in a lot of places. And I think it's, you know, it's that, it's sort of the congestion, um, the environmental pressures and the social pressures that are put on a dog that we have to be really aware of. Um, and, um, you know, again, it's, it's, it's really going to be based on the individual dog. You know, even with my five dogs, there's some of them love that environment and some of them aren't. So they'd rather be, you know, in the mountains, you know, um, away from all of that. So I think, you know, it's, um, yeah, it, it's an environment that's really great for some dogs, uh, really challenging for others. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's but people make it work. That's sort of New York City, right? right. <laughs> Just make things work. So, so that sort of led up to my question: is like, you know, how did you make the leap to opening up a facility? But how do people get to you if they have to take cabs and subways and things? So you sort of already answered that question. Yeah, and we're also uh, walking distance to the Upper East Side, where a lot of our clients are from. Um, so a lot of people walk, and also just where, where we're at in Harlem, um, a much bigger proportion of our clients are actually from Harlem now, whereas when we first started, they weren't. Um, so that also, so there's also those people within walking distance. But um, but in terms of like how we made the the leap to the to the facility, um, when we when we made that decision, it was we made that decision because we had a backlog of day training. Um, so we would have waiting lists sometimes for like two to three months. Um, so it was really just, uh, we were throwing business away. Um, you know, it's also not great to, to have that long of a waiting list cause it's not really helpful for people. Um, and, uh, so we knew we had the volume, um, to make it work. So we figured a facility would make us more efficient. Um, and so that's sort of, that's, we really just sort of made the leap based on that, that we, we, we had the volume there. Um, and again, it was like one of those things. I was a lot more confident going into it then than I am now going <laughs> into my new facility. Um, but it was, uh, it, it was really just, yeah, it was, it was having the volume there and that made it feel less risky. Awesome. Yeah. I think I've, I, we've heard that a couple of times now, Kat is, you know, you really want to have the clientele already built before you decide to leap into a facility, um, which makes sense. You know, you at least know you're going to have yeah. clients to begin with. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> so what would be your advice to a dog trainer that wants to open up a facility? What are some things to look out for? Um, what are some things that maybe you didn't think about before you, you did that? Um, what, what do you think? Oh, I mean, all kinds of mistakes. So, <laughs> but the, the biggest ones I would, so one of the biggest things I think, uh, there, so there's three people that you absolutely need in your business life. If you're going to make that leap. Um, you need a really good CPA or an accountant, <laughs> yeah. you know, so you really need a, you really need a, it's really important for, you know, being able to secure loans in the future. You know, if you're looking for expansion, it's important for, uh, taxes. And then you really need that monthly sort of P and L report as well to really make sure, you know, you're, you're paying bills and, and you're doing okay because sometimes, you know, numbers in your bank account can be deceiving. Um, so you really need an accountant to sort of help with that, um, Obviously, a good lawyer, just making sure you understand local laws, um, you have the right contracts in place, so that's really, really important. Um, and then the other thing um, that I just learned over time, because no one tells you, is just, you know, all the different types of insurance you need, so you should have a good insurance broker or someone who understands that part of the business, and, you know, just 
off the top of my head, you know, workers' comp, disability, general liability, umbrella insurance, professional insurance, employment practices, liability insurance, uh, especially when you're getting into hiring people. So, um, and I just, you know, kind of figured that out through trial and error. Um, and that's sort of what I, I wish I'd known more about that stuff uh, early on. I never got burned by it, um, but I definitely went through some times where, you know, um, I should have had better, more thorough insurance in place. Um, I think that's one of the advice I give a lot to, to new people starting facilities is really watch, you know, re- really be careful with, with insurance. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah. A lot of people have uh, no idea, even, you know, without a facility, they don't you know, necessarily understand what kind of liabilities they might be taking on to begin with and then what kind of insurance they need for that. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then I think the, the other sort of, uh, piece is that when you go to a facility, you're usually relying on a team um, and you're really only as good as your team. So you're relying on other people for your quality and reputation. Uh, and I think one of the, I was talking to Sarah earlier and just talking about, you know, for anyone thinking about opening up a facility, I, one of the things you really need to internalize and think about if this is what you want to do is you're going to spend more time managing people managing the business, managing right. issues, managing finances, and you spend less time training. So, you know, as our company's gotten bigger, I've personally done a lot less training um, just because there's other stuff going on. Uh, and that's okay, but I think some people don't necessarily realize that before they get into it. Um, and I think that's, uh, I would, you know, so make, make sure you know that and you're kind of okay with that before you make that leap. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah. So do you think that a dog trainer can be as successful without a facility? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just different. Um, I think there's different markets out there, you know, um, and I think it's, you know, a facility helps you serve like certain markets where, you know, we're able to tap into a market where, you know, people go away and they just want their dog to have training instead of just going to boarding or maybe, you know, having a pet sitter, um, you know, so you can absolutely do have awesome training companies, um, you know, in the city and there's, and there's lots in New York city that we compete with. And most of them are our friends, you know, where they have great day training businesses or great private lesson businesses or group classes where they rent out space. So, you know, a facility is, is absolutely not needed, um, by any means. Um, I would just say the biggest benefit of it is it does allow you to do, uh, more work in terms of, uh, at least in our environment, uh, more work in terms of socialization. So we can do like social, you know, um, you know, socialization classes or, you know, being able to do controlled setups with other dogs if dogs have issues with other dogs. Um, so you kind of have those advantages, but yeah, you, you absolutely don't need a facility to be successful. Great. So it sounds like you're just like, you know, busy all the time. So um, how do you do self-care to not start heading towards burnout? Uh, if you know anyone who can give me advice on this, I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, you know, I, it is, it's a, it's a problem. Again, I've gone through, um, even right now, about a year and a half without, I, I've taken a few days off this week and it's been about a year and a half um, since I've really taken time off. Um, I need to be better at it. I mean, for me personally, I, I try to run and I play hockey and, you know, I do those types of things, but um, I'm probably not the best guest to talk about that because I'm not very good at it. Um, <laughs> But I do, but I will say it is important to take time off and I, and, I, and people in our industry, I think we need to be better at doing that um, because the work that we all do, it, you know, it takes an emotional toll, um, 
Right. And, you know, we, especially when you're doing behavior work, you know, and, and it's a roller coaster. Like you have days where you have these huge successes and then you have days where, you know, they're, you're not having successes uh, or, you know, dogs, you know, might get put down for behavior issues. Um, and over time, that sort of eats at you. Um, so I think it's really, really important. And, um, you know, make, making sure we're, we're supporting each other on that. Um, so I would just say I do think time off is important. But I, the other thing I'll say, though, for me that's helped is when I feel burnt out, I really want to look at sort of what's the root cause of what's causing the burnout. So about a year and a half ago, it was like uh, admin processes, like our, you know, managing boarding and vaccination records and client follow-ups. And we were spending so much time doing admin and that was, you know, really just not fun to do. Um, and so we put in two new systems in place that made a drastic difference and gave us a lot of time back and reduced a lot of stress. Um, so I think there's sort of two things. One is making sure we're, you know, taking the time off and the other thing is really looking at what seems to be causing the stress. And is, is there a way to restructure your business or change things to make things easier? I would say that that would probably be my two pieces of advice on that. Awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that, that makes Absolutely. sense. Um, so I saw on your website that you offer a 30-minute uh, free meet and greet. Um, I was wondering, why do you offer that? And what does that process look like? Because I know a lot of dog trainers are scared of offering up uh, their time for free. Um, so how does that process look like? And, you know, how do you make sure you get the sale at the end of the 30 minutes? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, and it, this is definitely easier when you have a facility because I understand, yeah. you know, if you don't have a facility, you don't really want to be, you know, investing travel time and everything into this. Um, I do think you could do it with, uh, you know, phone calls or Skype or those types of things. Um, but really the reason why we do it is it's an easy first step for people. Um, mm -hmm. It's a, and when I look at clients, I mean, a lot of owners, I think, are scared to reach out to a dog trainer. <laughs> and when I see them walking through our door sometimes, you can see them just a little bit nervous because, you know, we're in an unregulated industry. Everyone's heard different stories. Um, and I think just getting people through that door and just helping them understand that you can help um, and that you're going to be nice to them and their dog. And I think that's what the free meet and greet does. I think it establishes trust. Um and for us, it worked really well because I think it helps people feel comfortable with us before, you know, investing in, you know, some sort of training program. Um, and uh, make sure to offer, um, you know, a number of options. So we don't, we're not pushy with our sales process either. So right. um, we, we, you know, say here, here are, you know, some board and train options. And that might not be appropriate for all dogs. You know, here are private lessons options. We have in-home and in-studio and we usually lay out options and then let people pick and then also just help set realistic expectations about what we can and can't do. And I think that's really helpful for people as well. Um, so, yeah, I think it just, you know, sets appropriate expectations. It builds trust and make sure people feel comfortable with you before, you know, making that investment. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a I'm an advocate for those kind of free evaluation um, type meetings so that people can get to know you and um they're more likely to invest more money once they do trust you in that manner. So absolutely. Um, and also a lot of people don't know what they need to begin with. So, you know, they don't know whether <laughs> they, they need board and train or private lessons or, uh, right. you know, so that's, that gives you an opportunity to step in and make some recommendations. Um, awesome. So you've added quite a few staff in the last year. I've seen just on Facebook. Um, how do you decide, you know, it's time to grow and add to your staff? 
Yeah, so the uh, in general, we the rule that I have is we you know we, we need to be profitable enough to before we bring in other people, and that is especially true for non-revenue generating roles. So if we're going to be you know upping our canine care staff, so those are the you know or our behavior techs who like do the uh, the walks and feedings and play times and those those types of things, we need to make sure that. Um, you know, we're able to absorb that additional cost or, you know, we're either going to cut back in other areas or maybe we need to increase prices because that's going to be, you know, what's best for, for the dogs in our care. Um, but, you know, really making sure you have the money there. Um, and because when you're when you're paying employees, you know, it, it's not inexpensive, especially with payroll taxes. So really making sure you have that. Um, and then for like the revenue gen- generating roles, which would be our trainers and, and behavior consultants, um, we usually bring them in when we can't sort of handle our current, we're just, we're not able to keep up with new inquiries mm-hmm. um, or we're expanding into a new service area. So for example, when we moved into our current facility, we stopped doing day training because we, we could do board and trains. Um, we now have a trainer who's focusing on day training. So we're getting back into that area of the market. Um, so kind of expanding there. So it allows us to take a little bit more risk on because it, it's, we're kind of going back into another area. Um, and so that, that's really what, what we're looking at. And one of our you know, goals for Instinct is really getting to a point where we would love to have get to a point where if someone wants to start training, they can start today. <laughs> yeah, and that's sort yeah. of my angle is, you know, right now you could you can start within a day or two usually, but I would love to get to a point where someone could start today. Um, and that's sort of our lofty goal. But um, but yeah, that that's sort of how we decide when to add staff. That's awesome. Awesome. So how do you find the right staff? I mean, just looking at the myriad of training backgrounds and education and for the trainers and behavior consultants, how are you finding those people? And then how are you finding your caregivers? Yeah, so the professional network is, is priceless. Um, so if I look at our training team now, you know, like this year we added Sarah Dixon, who you guys may know. Yeah. Uh, she mm-hmm. was a yeah. pretty well-known trainer in Canada. So uh, we're lucky enough to have her come join our team. Um, we added Jessica Schulte, who we knew, who's a well-known sort of nose work trainer in the um, – in the Northeast and, and in the New York area. And she also does, you know, pet dog training. Uh, we've also had client. We had, we had one person who was a client who became a trainer. <laughs> who, was, awesome. who was great. Yeah. Cause uh, you know, sometimes that's a good way where you just kind of see that raw talent, like good, you know, just raw handling skills and just, you know, that interest. Um, but for the trainers in general, in general, it comes from within our training network or people that I've met in the past or, or introductions. Um, and it is tough because, you know, as you said, there's a lot of different, um, you know, not even just training methods, but in terms of how you even interface with clients <laughs> and handle tricky issues, you know, or, um, you know, handle, handling difficult conversations. So, um, so we, we, it really tends to be within our, our, our professional network. Um, and then outside of that, um, you know, really over the last year and a half, we've been getting the best leads from uh, Indeed, you know, like Indeed, like the job site. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, especially on our canine care front, because um, we usually need people with two or three years of experience working in a shelter or a vet hospital because uh, we do handle dogs with white histories and dogs who have sensitive, you know, 
you know, special needs in terms of their handling. And, you know, you, there's not a whole lot of room for mistakes with, with some of the dogs we work with. Um, right. And so uh, a lot of them, we have a lot of come from like the ASPCA or different uh, different places. Um, but we've been finding a lot of those people on Indeed recently. We've had really good, um, you know, resumes come through. Um, and so that's how we've been, you know, that's how we've done that. And then also in the last year, um, you know, there's been a huge focus on reducing turnover, which can be a problem in our industry. So um, we've moved now 12 of our 15 people are full time with benefits. Um, and that is we only had one voluntary turnover last year. And it was a canine care person who went to vet school. Um, so I think that was a fair, <laughs> it was a, sort <laughs> yeah, of a fair yeah. reason. to leave. Um, But yeah, so this now we're focusing a lot on retention. Um, which is kind of like a different ball of wax. So, right, um, right. But yeah, awesome. awesome. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I was just wondering. You said they're full time with benefits, so I'm assuming they're employees then instead of yeah. uh, independent contractors. Yeah, yeah, and, and that is something uh, we should probably really pay attention to in our industry because I, yeah. it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there doing independent contractors, and I'm sure some of them are absolutely okay doing it because of the way you know they structure their business. Um, but really, I mean, if you're, you know, that line that I've been told by multiple accountants, cause I pushed on this, you know, in the, especially when I first started my business, when, you know, you're really watching your finances and you have to be really careful with, you know, your, your, your expenses and your payroll expenses. Um, and really what they said is, you know, you can tell an independent contractor what to do, but you can't tell them how to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. and really if everyone on my team, you know, while they have some degree of, of control, you, you know, we are telling them how to do certain things or instructing them how to do certain things. Um, so for us, everyone, you know, follow, falls under that, that umbrella. And we do have to, if, if someone is doing, you know, independent contractor work, just, you know, always be careful because, you know, that seven point uh, whatever percent payroll taxes adds up really fast. Um, and I've known some people who have been burned by that in the past and it's not good. Um, so yeah, just, you know, just be careful, careful. And if you are doing that, just make sure you have a CPA or like, or a lawyer, like some, some sort of, a employment lawyer, just make sure that they agree that that's okay. For sure. Yeah. I think the, sure. the common thread here is don't be afraid to hire a CPA or an, a lawyer to uh, get <laughs> well, some of this business stuff yeah. out of the way. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it, and it makes everything less stressful, you know, cause oh, my yeah. first accountant, my, my first CPA wasn't, uh, wasn't as good as this one. <laughs> uh, and, and, and this one has been just awesome. And yeah, it, so it can make things a lot less stressful and give you more time to focus on other areas of your business. Absolutely. Um, what are some other challenges you've come across with your facility? Yeah, so uh, always being on call uh, mm -hmm. is one thing. So yeah. You know, especially when you're housing animals and you're responsible for their welfare and their care, you know, 365 days a year. And it doesn't matter what the weather's like or what holidays there are. Um, you know, if you have someone call in sick or a couple people get sick or, you know, recently we had we had a bug go through our facility, not with the dogs, but with our people. Oh, no. <laughs> so oh, it's no. like every, everyone was getting sick and, uh, you know, just sort of dealing dealing with that. So that's and. and you know, so it's really, you know, a need to have, you know, strong management has to be there. So, you know, your management team has to be, you know, really good. But, you know, you're never really away from it. Um, and I think that's sort of one of the, you know, the challenges. Um, you know, we've gotten better. We're in terms of, you know, making sure, like, people can't just call our cell phone. Like, clients can't just call our cell phone. They have to call our business phone. Right. Um, 
you know, really trying to take one or two days off a week where you don't respond to things unless it's an absolute emergency. Um, so that, like, that's definitely one challenge. Uh, quality control is a constant ongoing endeavor. Um, you know, you always want to make things better. Um, and you're always trying to balance, you know, quality control without like overburdening your team with like, you know, a million different checklists or different things, um, and sort of striking that balance, um, can be really challenging. So, uh, it gets easier with the better team you have, um, for sure. So, um, it's always sort of finding that balance. And then I think the third sort of, you know, challenge is just sort of managing cash flow. you know, just making sure you're, you're aware of your high times and your, and your, you know, low times. Like for us, we know December before the holiday rush is just, it's really, it's generally just really slow, you know, with our business and April, April's kind of a shockingly always sort of a slow month. Whereas, you know, May through September, it's just cre- absolutely crazy. The holidays are crazy. Um, and just making sure you're, you're managing your cash flow appropriately. And again, it goes back to your CPA and making sure you're not getting yourself into trouble. Um, but those are sort of the, the three, you know, sort of the three main challenges that I deal with frequently. Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks for sharing all of that. It's so, um, it's so valuable, uh, I think, for everybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> so on to kind of some more uh, interesting facts. Um, you've been recently sharing some research on the limitation of using behaviorism learning theory quadrants for training decisions. So can you tell us you know, how you found yourself doing this research and what you've discovered or, or come up with? Yeah, so it, it was really, um, you know, over the course of my degree, which I've been really focused and really interested in uh, in welfare science. And um, and so one of the nice things is with the, with welfare science is, I've, is and, and both Sarah and I, is we really feel that it can, in conjunction with the humane hierarchy, um, it can give us a different lens that I think can sometimes help us make uh, better decisions than relying on the humane hierarchy alone. Um, so the humane hierarchy, you know, um, has benefited benefited the industry a lot, um, and it's pushed us in the right direction. So I'm by no means poo-pooing the humane hierarchy. Right. Um, right. However, there really, if you look at it, and this is really important, I think, for new trainers as well, and it, but it's also important for experienced people, um, is that there's no guidelines in terms of assessing how a behavior intervention will impact an animal's welfare other than you kind of work your way down the hierarchy. So you'll look at wellness first and then you'll look at antecedent arrangement, you know, positive reinforcement, and then you go down to, you know, what they call differential reinforcement of alternate behaviors and then your extinction, negative reinforcement, negative punishment, and finally you're down at the bottom with, with positive punishment. Um, and the general, the, sorry, the general assumption, which is completely and utterly reasonable, is that you're moving from the least to most intrusive intervention as you move from one end of the hierarchy to the other. Uh, however, the least intrusive option may may not always lead to the best welfare o- outcome in all cases. Um, and that's where a welfare assessment uh, can aid uh, in conjunction with the humane hierarchy with this decision process. So for example, you know, welfare science can help us because it considers and measures an individual animal's behavior their physical, um, their physical health and their physiological and emotional state throughout the process. Um, and so for me, like if I'm, you know, maybe I have a couple of different um, interventions that I'm looking at, you know, so maybe it's I'm deciding whether to use a front clip harness versus a head halter for, you know, for some dog. Um, and what I'm going to look at is 
uh, you're going to look at the positive impacts to the welfare um, for both the health, or sorry, for all three of the, the main areas, the health, the physiological, um, emotional state, and the behavioral um, and the behavioral measures, and then you're going to look at the positive negative impacts and considering those within the environmental constraints and the care and the characteristics of the individual dog, um, and trying to understand that you know look at it from from the dog's perspective, um, and saying you know which of these which of these interventions is going to lead to the best welfare outcome for the dog. And we're making a prediction because we don't know, right? I mean, a lot of times we're making assumptions, but what this gets you in the habit of is writing down what we expect the positive um, welfare um, impacts to be and what, and what the negative ones are. And then we monitor that throughout the process. Um, and it's really helpful for me and it's really helpful for a team to walk through that, um, especially when you might be weighing up you know, several different interventions. Um, or if you're just working your way down the hierarchy and you you know really need to consider what 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 will this mean for the animals or any benefit to them at all, and if there's not, we probably really need to consider if we should be working our way down. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like should we should we be working our way down the, the the humane hierarchy if there's no benefit for them? And of course, there's always a balance between the human needs and the uh, and the dog's needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so that's really more so what this it's it's really just sort of taking this rich literature about. Um, that's out there in terms of looking at how can, how can we uh, understand how this impacts the the individual dog um, and just sort of applying that to our day-to-day work as dog trainers. Um, so I find it really exciting um, and it really helps me a lot. So, um, you know, we're looking forward to, to, you know, sharing that at the, you know, at the IAABC conference this year. Um, we also presented this in their, you know, principles and practice course. Um, But yeah, and, and so, yeah, and that's really what, you know, so that's, that's sort of, that's really, you know, what this is about. And um, does that make sense? And that was a bit of a ramble. (laughs) (laughs) No, that makes sense. I'm super curious to hear kind of like an example situation or scenario, um, like how you would balance those, but maybe that's something where we should wait for the presentation or a course on that. <laughs> it's up to uh, you. Yeah, I mean, we can. I mean, I'm happy to walk through an example now, um, like really quickly. Okay. Um, but, you know, so like, because I was thinking about this, you know, b- before we hopped on today, and it was even just the other day I saw a, or not the other day, um, a couple of weeks ago, um, I saw a dog who, who moved to Manhattan and they moved, they moved to Manhattan several months ago. Um, the dog is really nervous outside, so really noise sensitive. Oh. Um, you know, um, will go to the bathroom and then just want to bolt back inside. You know, so really um, not really interested in going and you know doing anything else outside. Um, the owner went to a vet, and the vet actually um, did, prescribed um, fluoxetine and then referred to us. So, um, and then it was interesting because when I went to the in-home, this, this was an in-home consult. And the owner really asked me, the main reason, excuse me, why I was there, she asked, how can I make sure she is happy as she can be here and make sure she's getting enough exercise? And it's like purely a welfare question, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, a, it, it's a challenge because we want to, you know, we're concerned about her, um, you know, that physiological state. And she was also worried about her, you know, getting enough exercise. Um, so during the consult, you know, just asking about, you know, what types of things does she like? And, you know, the dog loves other dogs um, and does like going to parks and sniffing around. Um, 
And so those were like two big things that she said she likes to do is like hanging out with other dogs and like going to a park. Um, but because she, every time she went outside and just wanted to bolt back in, the owner was unsure if she should just let her continue to do that. Or there's actually a very nice park at the end of the block. So it wasn't even that far. So, you know, it was literally a 30 second walk away. Um, but, you know, the, the dog wouldn't go in that direction because you didn't really know the park was there. Um, so what we did was, you know, we, we, we walked the dog down there, and luckily this dog would actually move. The owner kind of walked briskly, so we didn't, you know, there's no dragging her down to the park or anything like that. You know, there wasn't sort of any sort of panic. Um, but it was interesting because once we got into the park, you know, there, the dog started sniffing, doing investigative behaviors, started greeting other dogs. Um, and then after that had happened for 10 or 15 minutes, what you saw was sort of this, um, the general emotional state of the dog just started to change. So on our way back, we could give her the full length of the leash and she was walking you know, much more you know, slowly and relaxed. Um, the owner commented that she was way less noise sensitive. Um, you know, she said like, wow, like she didn't respond to that you know, truck that just backfired. Um, she was like sniffing poles and doing things that she, was, that she said she wasn't doing when she was out on those walks. Um, so it was an example where, you know, one, you know, and she wouldn't eat outside. So we couldn't like reinforce sort of, you know, walking in the right direction because she was just, you know, too, too nervous to eat. Um, so, you know, we have one where it was just, you know, do we keep letting the dog go back inside? Um, or, you know, do we actually try taking her to a place where she might like to be? Um, and that could probably be considered probably, um, you know, a more aversive, um, you know, intervention in the beginning because she doesn't really want to be outside. Right. Um, you know, but we saw, uh, you know, behavioral measures, which indicated she was, you know, you know, enjoying it, enjoying it enough. Um, you know, we saw we saw a change in her emotional state. And it was, you know, the first time she had gotten exercise that was longer than five minutes, um, you know, outside. So and she, and she also uh, reached out to me later and told me that the dog is now eating outside as well. So nice. I think it was nice. like we have these measures um, where it seems like, hey, like this might actually be beneficial. And now when I go back three or four weeks later, what we should see is a continued improvement in that physiological emotional state where she seems more comfortable outside. It might not be perfect, but she should be coping better. Um, we should see her, you know, wanting, you know, probably choosing to go to the park to engage in those behaviors. Whereas if I go back three or four weeks from now and, you know, we really don't see much of an improvement or the dog is still, you know, changes, you know, changes her mind and she just wants to run back inside, then we'll look at other options. There's no point in doing that. Um, so I think that's sort of an example where, you know, to answer the client's question properly, I, it helped me to kind of walk through this sort of a little welfare assessment. And we, we worked through it together, and I think it was helpful for both us and the client. Um, so that was sort of, you know, be an example of that. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. So, you know, I, I usually see this um, welfare versus training sort of clash with specifically loose leash walking. Right. Because the people have this idea of this marching in perfect line and sync down the street. And isn't that gorgeous when the dogs really just do need to sniff and explore and yes. run through the leaves. Um, yes. So <laughs> is this more of a human side of it versus, you know, so we're trying to convince the people that the dogs need that little bit of enrichment or is this still partly dog training or some combination of the two yeah so i it, it i think it makes it helps be more aware 
of what their dogs need and would choose. So like, for example, like you said, like running through the leaves and sniffing, um, you know, so I, a lot of times we call those, you know, highly motivated, you know, those are highly motivated species appropriate behaviors, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Yep. those are measures of like the dog is, is healthy and, and enjoying themselves. Um, and, you know, just it's, it's funny because sometimes even just saying that to an, to an owner, they're like, oh, so they don't just have to walk next to me without pulling, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and when I first started training, I used to give that advice all the time that, you know, your dog should walk next to you and not pull. Um, yep. Yep. And, you know, I've really changed. And if you saw the leash walking of my two rat terriers right now, you might not know I was a dog <laughs> trainer. Um, so, you know, um, but yeah, I, I think it's really, it's, it's important to get people to focus on that. And it's really about making decisions that, that we think that are, you know, going to improve the lives of the dogs as much as possible. Um, you know, and always understanding that, you know, the humans have their own needs as well. So we always have to keep that in mind. Um, but yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. And I think that leash walking example is a, is a great one. Yeah, I think it's yeah. when, you know, that I've actually had people say, oh, they don't have to walk next to me. <laughs> like who made these rules? Yep, I know. And, it, and it's, it's amazing how much, you know, and not only, you know, with that example, are you getting sort of the, the behavior that we want to see with the dog? I mean, in general, you, you know, you get, you know, you get this almost de-stressing effect with the dogs too. Like it helps them cope with the environment better, you know? Right. So when they're allowed to sniff, if they see something that makes them nervous and they know that they can just go sniff the ground and like move away, you know, you know, they, they, they have more species appropriate sort of coping mechanisms that, that, that can come from that as well. Um, but yeah, no, that's, that's yeah, a really great example. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so you'll be presenting your findings at the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants uh, conference in April, correct? Yes, correct. Awesome. Great. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm considering going. I have to decide, but we'll see. Oh, cool. <laughs> awesome. Where can people go for more information about the conference? I believe they, uh, if they go to the IAABC website, so IAABC.org, I believe there's a big conference button on there. Awesome. Yep. And I'll post the, the link in the show notes as well. So Fabulous. Awesome. All <laughs> right. Thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Modern Dog Trainer podcast. Don't forget, you can check out the show notes at themoderndogtrainer.net slash podcast. You can also share your thoughts and support our podcast by leaving a review on iTunes. Until next time.